the uh, uh, program in law and public affairs. Uh, I especially want to uh, express my gratitude uh, to uh, everyone in that program, uh, for especially Kim Shepley, the director of the program, for joining us in this conference. When uh, we got in touch with Professor Finnis uh, to remind him of the 25th anniversary of the publication of his influential and important book, Natural Law and Natural Rights, was coming up and to say that uh, we wanted to do something uh, to mark that occasion and stimulate discussion on our own campus of uh, the issues he raised in the book. Characteristically, Professor Finnis said that he did not want to focus uh, uh, attention to be on him or even uh, on his book, but that this should be an occasion for the broad discussion uh, of ideas that were raised in the book, of issues that were raised in the book, and of course the book explores a range of issues from fundamental ethics and fundamental ethical theory to rights, obligation, uh, authority, the problem of unjust laws, the idea of the common good, and so forth and so, and so on. So we decided we would uh, indeed do that and we would try to round up uh, outstanding scholars uh, from Britain and the United States and elsewhere. You'll see uh, folks on the, uh, on the program uh, from Latin America and other places to explore these issues uh, together. And I'm also grateful to Professor uh, Finnis for uh, calling to our attention and uh, helping us to line up scholars for whom he personally has uh, such profound regard in the area of uh, uh, jurisprudence or philosophy of law. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the program over to the chairman of uh, this panel, Professor Eric Gregory, to introduce Professor Finnis uh, and the panel. Well, it's a pleasure to moderate this opening session. I want to thank the Madison Program and the Program of Law and Public Affairs for allowing a humble Augustinian from the religion department to welcome all these Thomists and other philosophers and legal theorists to Princeton. Uh, what I'm going to do is introduce all of our speakers, or each of our speakers, and simply allow the respondents to follow right after our main presenter. And then there'll be time for uh, discussion and question and answer um, to follow those. I just returned from a very enjoyable year at Notre Dame where one of many delights was the opportunity to spend time with John Finnis, bringing back happy memories of an Oxford seminar in the early 1990s that Professor Finnis co-taught with Jermaine Grise. Uh, when my students complain about difficult moral problems, I play the old man and recall how, when I was a student, we resolved 300 moral examples in one seminar. <laughs> it was in that class that I came to appreciate the structure of a natural law theory and witness the virtuous uh, exercise of practical reasonableness by its foremost exponent. Professor Finnis received his LLB from Adelaide University and his B.Phil from Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar from South Australia. He currently holds the Biocini Chair at the University of Notre Dame and is also a Professor of Law and Legal Philosophy at the University of Oxford. A fellow of the British Academy, he wrote and annually updates the title on constitutional laws of the Commonwealth and Halsbury's Laws of England. Some of his other titles include Fundamentals of Ethics, 1983, Nuclear Deterrence, Morality and Realism, 1987, Moral Absolutes, 1991, <coughs> and most recently, the launch volume of Oxford's Founders of Modern Political and Social Thought, Aquinas, Moral, Political, and Legal Theory, 1998. Of course, we're here to honor the 25th anniversary of this now classic work, Natural Law and Natural Rights. Responding to Professor Finnis's paper will be Professor Terence Henry Irwin and Professor Patrick Lee. 
Professor Irwin is Susan Lynn Sage Professor of Philosophy and Humane Letters at Cornell University. Before joining the faculty there, he taught philosophy and classics at Harvard University. He has published widely on Greek philosophy, including Plato's Ethics, Aristotle's First Principles, and an annotated translation of Aristotle's Ethics. I also highly recommend to you his article of the same year, 1999, Splendid Vices, Augustine for and Against Pagan Virtue. He holds an MA from the University of Oxford and his PhD here from Princeton University. Professor Lee is Professor of Philosophy at Franciscan University of Steubenville. He received his BA from the University of Dallas, an MA from Niagara University, and his PhD from Marquette University in 1980. He's the author of Abortion and Unborn Human Life, and is now working on a book with Robert George, tentatively titled Body, Self, Dualism, and Contemporary Ethical Issues. Please join me in welcoming Professor Finnis to speak on the topic, Practical Reasons Foundations Revisited. Thank you very much for that, and thank you particularly to Robert George for bringing this all together. The title of my paper is not, in fact, the title on the program, but a slightly more modest version of the title, Foundations of Practical Reason Revisited. One's investigations, reflections, and communications are actions. Sometimes they're simply spontaneous, but very often, as with other kinds of action, one needs to opt into by deliberation, choice, and continued effort, all of which makes noticeable one's responsiveness to opportunities. And in this paper, I try to revisit some main elements in that responsiveness. Doing law immerses one both in practical reasons activities, thinking about what to choose and do, and in a certain amount of reflection on the content and structure of that thinking. As Aquinas says, laws, whether highly general or very specific, are all universal propositions of practical reason. From the beginning of one's legal studies, especially in a common law jurisdiction like ours, one's working to identify the propositions of law that are correct for the jurisdiction, let's say, valid. To oneself and others, one shows both the content and the correctness of these propositions by referring to further propositions, picking out conditions for the validity of a proposition of law. Conditions, some of which jurists call sources of this jurisdiction's law, and others of which they call principles of interpretation. Some 19th and 20th century legal theories, as everyone knows, such as those of John Austin and Hans Kelsen, could be taken to imply that the conditions for legal validity all concern form and originating fact, forms of transaction or process such as enactment by the dateable activities of a particular legislature. And that position has initial appeal to lawyers, used as they are, to seeking the root of title in forms of dateable transactions such as sale, conveyance, registration, and the like. But it's turned out to be both mistaken and self-defeating to deny that criteria or premises for judging propositions of law valid or not valid 
correct or not correct, characteristically do and need to refer also to content, to considerations concerning the kind of conduct that the proposition whose validity is in question purposed to direct or authorize, or concerning the ways in which other propositions of law may or do direct or authorize such conduct. Theories making that denial err in supposing that an account of law's validation could describe or explicate something recognizable as legal thought and practice unless, without acknowledging the centrality to legal thought and practice of such content-based criteria as the first purportedly valid propositions of law must not contradict or be practically inconsistent with each other, Second, the propositions validated by particular dateable legal transactions remain valid unless and until some invalidating event. Thirdly, that later transactions and their normative products prevail over earlier transactions and their products at the same time. None of those criteria is entailed by any factual propositions or originating events. And none is a requirement of logic for no requirement of logic excludes the sober judgment that such and such a community, and indeed each of its members, is simply confused, and or that its rulers enact contradictory rules in order to confuse their subjects. And theories seeking to expel from juristic science all non-formal criteria of validation defeat their own descriptive explanatory purpose. In any community, the criteria of validation employed by its law will be found to make reference to such content-based considerations as that the law's subjects need to be given coherent and practicable directions, that the law needs to change from time to time, that the law's requirements and authorizations should be ascertainable by its subjects in advance, that disputes should be settled, transactions and their putting into effect be facilitated, wrongs righted, reasonable expectations respected, fraud discouraged, and so forth. Criteria of content, such as the general principles of law that I've just mentioned, are sometimes unreasonably called principles of interpretation. They shape any jurist's understanding of statements and other originating events purporting to validate propositions of law in this or that particular jurisdiction, and equally shape any juristic assessment of that purported validity. All these general criteria, and even more so the more specified institutions and rules giving effect to them in the different ways we find in different communities, presuppose positions about what would be good for the community in question and what is harmful to it, like instability, uncertainty, irresolvable disputes, absence of opportunity to make arrangements that will order future events, unresponsiveness to new threats and opportunities, and so forth. In short, the law's sources include not only relevant judgments of the higher courts, applicable statutes and constitutional documents, writings of jurists, and principles of structures of logic, but also general principles articulating what seem to one in one's legal thinking, as they have seemed to many others, to be requirements of civilised, decent, humanly appropriate behaviour. 
And even to understand the legal system, let alone to participate in upholding, applying and developing one, is to engage with practical reason in a manner that invites awareness of and opportunity for reflection upon its practical reasons, structure, shape, process, criteria and logic as a set of reasons for action that count as legal reasons because of their place in that legal system's overall project of directively picking out prospective goods and ways to attain them, prospective harms and ways to avoid them. Sometimes, indeed, this reference to goods and harms is direct and immediate. More commonly, I think, it's to be discerned only by tracing back the specific propositions of law to the principles from which they derive. Principles articulating such a reference as a part of the rational process of interpretation and validation, by which, as good lawyers, we can make clear the justification for affirming that such and such P, and it is part of our law that P, is indeed a valid or true proposition of law, that is, of the law of this jurisdiction, at least. So a lawyer, particularly in the common law tradition, but not, uh, not of course, exclusively so, can readily find congenial and account of practical reasons such as Aquinas offered in his discussion of law, treating every human positive law as a proposition derived from practical reasons' very first principles whether by way of conclusion, as he says, or much more commonly, by the non-deductive but rational specification that he calls determinatio. But there can be no question, of course, of simply accepting Aquinas' account, whether because it's his or because it incorporates Aristotle's and Plato's, or because it fits some main aspects of one's lawyerly habits of thought. Everything in it has been challenged, and needs to be reappropriated, if and to the extent that it deserves to be, by thinking through the challenges and denials it confronts. It's commonly supposed that the easy way to show what is meant by practical reason or rationally required is to point to cases where opting for and doing or achieving X will get one what one wants and will satisfy one's desire or one's here and now dominant desire. The necessity of means to an end established in and by one's desiring is taken to be paradigmatic practical necessity, practical rationality and normativity. At least practical as distinct from, say, logical normativity. Such thoughts can be given the label human or neo-human. And so they are. But David Hume himself gives disconcerting voice to their implication for the very idea of practical reason. It is not contrary to reason, he says famously, for me to prefer the destruction of the whole world to the scratching of my finger. It is not contrary to reason for, for me to choose my total ruin to prevent the least uneasiness of an Indian or person wholly unknown to me. It is as little contrary to reason prefer even my own acknowledged lesser good to my greater, and have a more ardent affection for the former than the latter. 
trivial good may, from certain circumstances, produce a desire superior to what arises from the greatest and most valuable enjoyment. Hume's claim here struck me long ago as more like an admission about what his account of reason entails. It is that my being deflected by this desire for a trivial good from doing what is required to get the greatest and most valuable enjoyment for myself, or to save everyone or the whole world from destruction, is not contrary to reason. That is to say, prudence in the thin modern sense of self-interest is no more rationally required or even rationally motivated than morality in the thin modern sense that gets its content by an implied contrast with self-interest. Nor is this a matter of Hume being carried away by love of paradox or rhetorical effect. This is just one of several ways in which Hume denies or is committed to denying that there is practical reason in favour of a picture in which we simply do whatever we do and what one actually does in each successive situation shows what it was that one was desiring and wanting most, shows what was, what was one's dominant end and the means one judged available and sufficiently efficacious. In such a picture there is simply no room for normativity, for being guided or directed to adopt certain means by reason of their efficacy for one's ends, which, however, one might irrationally or at least unreasonably fail to adopt. All that counts is one's current dominant desire, which may well be the desire to avoid the burdens and or bad side effects of the means necessary to attain what was, until a moment ago, one's dominant desire. The is of, is what I at this moment most desire, like the is of, is what I was most desirous of until a moment ago, and for that matter, the is of my intelligence is of the kind that finds means to ends. In each case, this is provides no ground for an ought. Thus, a mechanics of desire, in the end reducible to something as crude as Hobbes, as Hobbes depicts, has eliminated all the conceptual space which might have been occupied by practical reason. A reason that is slave to desire can indicate canny ways to satisfy some of one's desires, but gives no reasons for action. These implications of the Humean position were methodically and effectively traced in Christine Korsgaard's critique in 1997 of the standard assumptions about the normativity of instrumental reason, and more particularly about the normativity or practical rationality of self-interest and prudence. There she reached a strong, but I think justified, conclusion. There could be no practical rationality at all, no even hypothetical imperatives, no rationally required means, unless there are, to quote her, some rational principles determining which ends are worthy of preference or pursuit. Unquote. Again, normative principles directing the adoption of ends. Or again, something which gives normative status to our ends by giving, as she puts it, unconditional reasons for having certain ends and, it seems, unconditional principles from which those reasons are derived. Unquote. 
one might put it like this. If reasons did not go all the way down, there is no way they could enter directly into our deliberations at all. Or, to quote her, unless something attaches normativity to our ends, there can be no requirement to take the means to them. Such ends, moreover, have to be, in her words, good, in some sense that goes beyond the locally desirable. Unquote. For, I quote again, I must have something to say to myself about why I am willing an end and am committed to remain committed to it, even in the face of desires that would distract and weaknesses that would persuade me. Something better to say to myself, moreover, than the fact that this is what I wanted yesterday, unquote, or I add, indeed, a moment ago, or even in the struggle of feelings locally, right now. We might summarize her observations by saying basic reasons for willing, for choosing and carrying out one's choice, state what is good about what the action intends, and good in a way that could be said to give unconditional reason for acting in pursuit of such goods, or at least with an eye to avoiding what would negate such goods. Such good identifying reasons are unconditional, I take it to mean, not in the sense that they are categorical or moral, but in the sense that they are non-dependent, not in need of justificatory or validating explanation, primary, intrinsic, basic. Still, the question whether we're in a position to specify the basic reasons for willing and doing and consider them together, as I said, is one that, so far as I'm aware, Korsgaard, like most other contemporary philosophers, abstains from framing or answering. In her case, the abstinence may be connected with the philosophical tradition within which she explicitly places herself. The influence of this tradition, so important if we're to understand much modern theology too, can be seen when, in her Oxford Lectures of 2002, she takes up the question whether or not, as she formulates it, desires and inclinations are simply responses to the good-making properties of objects, and it is only the good-making properties of objects that we need to talk about when we talk about our reasons, not the desires and inclinations themselves. Unquote. Her answer is, I quote, as a Kantian, I disagree with that picture in two ways. First, in Kant's view, first, the features of the objects we desire that we mention when we explain why we value those objects would not give those objects value were it not for the way in which those features are related to human physiology and psychology. And second, in Kant's view, at the basis of every desire or inclination, no matter how articulately we can defend it, is a basic suitable to us, suitableness to us that is a matter of nature and not of reason. And third, still quoting Kant, Korsgaard's rendering of Kant's view, value is relational and what, is, what it is related to is our nature. Unquote. As to this first way of disagreeing, I remark that the three propositions she here identifies as Kant's view all seem to me to be, as they are stated, sound, save for the contrast implied in of nature and not of reason. And none of them gives a sufficient reason for doubting that intelligent desires and inclinations are responses to the good-making properties of suitable objects of desire, deliberation, and choice. As to the second way, it again appeals directly to that specific tradition and its master. She says, as a Kantian, I believe that it is our own choices that ultimately confer value on objects. 
if the choices are responsive to certain, certain features of those objects. I interject to suggest that part of the problem Korsgaard is making for himself arises from the ambiguity of the word object. In the old tradition which Kantian, or at least Kant's thought, seeks both to support and to contest, the objects of one's choice are, first, one's actions, second, the states of affairs that actions can instantiate or otherwise bring about, and thirdly, the consequent fulfilment, in part if not in whole, of persons that is the ultimate point of actions and their intended effects. In such an understanding of the term object, there's no plausibility to the thought that our, our, that our choices in responding to some feature of an object confer value upon it. Still less would there be plausibility to it if the term object is taken to include a person who might be benefited or harmed by my choice and action. But to re return to Korsgaard's second point, she says, in choosing objects, in conferring value on things that answer to our nature in welcome ways, an agent is affirming her own value. She takes what matters to her to matter absolutely, and so to be worthy of her choice. And I want to return to those questionable sentences in a moment, after letting Korsgaard add her own well-judged caveats. She continues right away. But even if the agent herself believes this Kantian theory, it doesn't follow that she must think of herself as choosing objects simply because she wants or likes them. She can still talk to herself and to others about what she likes about them and why. So even though there is a sense, in my account, in which she, we choose things because we want them, a sense in which the inclination provides the reason, it doesn't follow that when someone asks you, and that someone might well be the agent herself, as Korsgaard's earlier rendering at the point recalled, I must have something to say to myself, it doesn't follow that when someone asks you why you chose something, that I wanted it is the right answer. When you're explaining your values to another person, it's quite uninformative to mention the fact that you have an inclination for the object as the basis of the value. He knows that. He wants to know which inclination you're having, what is drawing you to the object. And you specify that by describing as far as you can the incentive, that is, by giving a motivationally loaded representation of the object, presenting the object as desirable or adversive in some specific way. Well, there's the passage, and taking it as a whole and giving full weight to the well-judged caveats that are its concern after its first three sentences, I wonder if there is not here another instance of what one finds in the full shadow of the Enlightenment, Hume founding everything in what we innocently think of as practical reason, founding everything in practical reason on desires that happen to be built into our nature, our human physiology and psychology, Kant denying that that can account for the rational force, the normativity, prescriptivity, or directiveness of any reasons for action, and ascribing that normativity to reasons self-legislation. This, in turn, being taken in Korsgaard's account to be a matter of committing oneself to ends, but Kant being unable to give any fundamental account of which ends it is intelligent and reasonable to commit oneself to. And all the while, the late Aristotelians of the time like some still today, are unable to provide the help that flickers momentarily into view with Korsgaard's idea of a basic suitableness to us that is a matter of nature. For not unlike the passage from her Oxford lecture, they, those late Aristotelians of the time, treat this as a matter of nature and not of reason. 
having lost touch with the foundational epistemological insight of Aristotle and Aquinas, that I regret not articulating as such in natural law and natural rights, that a nature such as ours is known by understanding the objects that make sense of the acts by which the capacities of the beings of such a nature are realized. The resulting enlightened confusion is epitomized by the oscillation in that passage of Korsgaard between, on the one hand, the idea of conferring value on things that answer to our nature in workable ways, and on the other, the contrary idea that their answering to our nature makes them valuable prior to our choice, and makes our choices an intelligent and in principle reasonable. And then again, the idea that as agents we have a value of our own that is to be affirmed, which might mean merely alleged, freely asserted and therefore freely deniable, but may more naturally mean judged to be what it truly is. What's to be made of the thought that in action one is affirming one's own value? First, as I'm sure she takes for granted, it would be unreasonable of me simply to assert without reason that while I have my own value and what matters to me matters absolutely and so is worthy of my choice, nevertheless you and everyone else do not have that kind of value. And what matters to you and others does not matter in the same kind of way. So if it were not evident, self-evidently assertable, that others, at least some others, and what matters to them are of value in a way that counts as giving me unconditional, if not categorical or obligatory, reason for acting in favour of them, unless that were so, the thought that I and my concerns have such value would have no purchase. Second, Korsgaard's own sound arguments against Hume and Miston's trawls, with the resultant willy-nilly overthrow of practical reason, show well enough that no mere desire or resolve of mine to treat myself and what matters to me as of inherent absolute value or worth can provide any reason for my so treating myself and my attitudes and inclinations, or indeed their objects. And third, to say or think that I and the objects of my choice have value is, is not to invite the question whether this says anything of interest, anything worthy of belief, unless it implies conditions and exclusions. To be choice-worthy, mustn't the objects in my choice have a value not predicable of the object of a drunkard searching for a lamppost to serenade, or to shift the nature of the doubt of the object of a ruthlessly selfish and cruel conman habitually flattering to deceive, rape, rob, and for the pleasure of it to kill. And can my value count for anything in deliberation or reflection unless it is other than that of such agents as a vigorous cancer or a crocodile diving to its lair with its still living booty, someone's child between its jaws? More pertinently still, isn't it clear that one's thoughts about the value of one's objectives and of the personal identity one will ineluctably shape for oneself by pursuing them can't be reasonably affirmed unless they could be mistaken. That they can be mistaken is something we've all learned, or at least come to presume, from experience by the very dawn of the age of reason, by six or seven, whenever it was. Following Aquinas and Germain Grisey's rethinking of Aquinas and the evidence of, amongst other things, empirical anthropology, the book Natural Law and Natural Rights offered a list of basic reasons for willing, intelligent wanting and doing. 
Jurisprudential discussions of the book have tended to focus too exclusively on the list, as if the answers to all the decisive questions are here. Philosophers have tended to ignore them. Many perhaps assumed that so straightforward a recital could not possibly be a true response to the issues considered by Hobbes, Hume, Kant, or Nietzsche. Though others, like Martha Nussbaum and Amartya Sen, have rejected the assumption, that assumption proposed their own comparably brief and substantive lists. In 1995 to 1997, Sabina Alcar put the resultant alternatives lists through partially over, the resultant alternative by partially overlapping lists to the test of consonance with the self-understanding of women in the village of Arabsalangi in far upcountry Pakistan, as she describes in her doctoral book, Value and Freedom. Aquinas thought of these basic reasons as the first practical principles, or principles of practical reason, principles both as propositions of high generality and comprehensiveness and as sources of all intelligent thinking about what to do. They are the principles of natural law and natural right, he says, that lawyers are in search of. But though they're justly thought of as a kind of ending place in a lawyer-like search for the roots of law's claims, what I want to stress in the rest of this paper is that identifying and affirming them is only a beginning. What qualities of thought and response are involved in getting from the first principles to the relatively specific judgments of a kind fit to be laws in a just political community? Some of the issues around this question have recently been explored by Terence Irwin in his the, the Scope of Deliberation, a Conflict in Aquinas, an article of 1990, and then his later article of 1997, Practical Reason, Divided Aquinas and His Critics. Irwin's earlier article suggested that Aquinas inconsistently holds both, on the one hand, that deliberation is always about means, not ends, and the intellectual virtue of deliberating well, prudentia, has no role in the virtuous person's identification and adoption of the right end or end, which is rather a matter of that non-deliberative grasp of basic ends and first practical principles that Aquinas calls synderesis and says is shared by the virtuous and vicious alike. And at the same time, on the other hand, holding inconsistently, that prudentia does necessarily have a role in that identification and adoption of the right end or ends which distinguishes the virtuous person from the vicious. In his later article, Irwin, I think, tacitly abandons this claim about Aquinas' inconsistency and finds the needed reconciliation in the thought that there is a macro prudence, the governing virtue of deliberating well about everything to do with what happiness consists in, in general, so to speak. The synderesis that virtuous and vicious share tells us no more and no less, according to Irwin's synthesis, than that there is for each and all of us a universal end, the final good of human beings with the nature they have. And it is for macro prudence to set us on the path to right action by determining that universal end and final good. But this is not, I think, the right way to synthesize Aquinas' statement whose inconsistency at the level of statements has interested his friends for many centuries into a coherent set of propositions <coughs> about the role of intellectual, but not the less moral, virtues, summarily, prudentia, in establishing the content of practical reason and so of ethics and sound politics. 
The ultimate first principle of natural law does not articulate, even generically, the concept of a universal end or final good of beings with our nature. Aquinas's vigorous explorations of such a final end in launching the second, first part of the second part of the Summa Theologia, explorations driven both by a specifically theological concern and premises and by the model of Aristotle's ethics, those vigorous explanations yield for a philosophical ethics little or no fruit beyond the paradoxical notion that there is an imperfective beatitudo, an incomplete, complete fulfilment which consists in living in line with the virtues. What it is to have these virtues and how one's responsive undertaking, understanding can advance from the first principles grasped in Cinderesis to the distinctions between morally good and bad and virtuous and vicious choices is left by the early sections of the first part of the second part of the Summa Theologiae in as much obscurity as Aristotle leaves the question how his discussions of eudaimonia in Ethics 1 and 10 illuminate the virtue of justice in Ethics Book 5. No, I think. The ultimate first principle of natural law occupying the same sort of place in practical thinking as the principle of non-contradiction in all thinking directs only that we act to some intelligible point and the substantive first principles have their directiveness precisely in, in and by picking out the kinds of point and good value that have the requisite, requisite intelligibility. Intelligibility as desirable because beneficial for anyone. Life, marriage, knowledge, friendship, practical reasonableness. And likeness to and harmony, indeed, a simulatio with the transcendent source of all reality and value. Anyone who has the prerequisite knowledge of cause and effect and of what is attainably possible, for example, that questions can be answered and answers hang together as fields of knowledge, can understand both the content and the directiveness of the propositions which pick out and direct, direct us to favour following these basic human goods, such as that knowledge is an opportunity. But one can't respond concretely to that directiveness without considering these ends in their relationship both to each other and to what might instantiate and or affect them intelligently. For one can't intend any kind of end, however ultimate or macro, without understanding it in relationship to means, to something that would promote or realise and instantiate an end of that kind. So everything about how these basic intelligible human goods hang together and a sensibly, reasonably realizable is a matter for practical reasonableness, that is, for prudentia. There's no special faculty called cinderesis. Rather, from end to end of practical reason and reasoning, there is simply one's understanding, intellectus, intelligibility, with its beginnings or roots or foundation in non-deductive acts of insight into understanding of the nature of experience, and then the effort and discipline of reasonable judgment judgment as, as we say, in a person of judgment. Judgment, judgment is indeed, I think, the idiomatic practical English for prudentia, which itself is nothing other than one's extending one's intelligence into mastering by informing and guiding with the basic goods integral intelligibility one's deliberations, judgments, choices, and the carrying out of one's choices in actions and the fulfillment possible in the circumstances for oneself and those who one's actions. Benefit. 
I agree with her and Aristotle and Aquinas that the principles that are picked out by philosophical ethics and that shape both that ethical theory and both uh, shaping both the ethical theory and the political and legal theory worthy of the name can't be other than a reflectively self-aware and appropriately extended version of prudentia, of right-minded thinking about what to do with one's life, including one's life as a citizen. I mention this here because the thought that one cannot do ethical political theory well without having the moral and intellectual virtue of practical reasonableness can seem arrogant. But really, it's a recognition that in this kind of theorizing, one has a special and unavoidable vulnerability to theoretical error, namely to theoretical error arising precisely because of some regrettable defect in one's character, which entails some want of redemption. Of course, one can be, so to say, academically adept at articulating and finding one's way around an ethical system which one accepts as propositions already articulated by others, whether by a single magister or by a community or school or tradition, rather as if it were a legal system, just as we nowadays can be adept, say, of the Roman law of slavery. This needs no well-developed practical reasonableness, no prudentia or other virtues, but nor is a theory, properly speaking, Still, it doesn't follow that every error or weakness in one's theorizing must be ascribed to one's moral flaws. Failure to reflect accurately upon one's deliberations and dispositions and or to reason from one's reflections correctly and energetically can be the cause of oversights and errors of theoretical judgment. The account of ethics given in Natural Law and Natural Rights fails to identify what unifies and validates the intelligibility of the eight or nine principles with which its chapter on the methodological requirements of practical reasonableness is concerned. It should have explicated those proto-ethical principles as specifications of morality's master principle that one should remain open in all one's deliberating and willing to integral fulfillment, fulfillment which is not only one's own, nor indifferent to one's own, but locates one's own in the fulfillment of all persons, all human persons, in all their communities. Such specifications give us something properly decisive to say to oneself, as Pogar put it, in the face of those emotional motivations which would deflect us from, as distinct from those that support us, in responding with integral reasonableness to the directiveness of the basic reasons. And thus we move from the understanding, in itself pre-moral, of the basic human goods, the basic practical reasons, to moral distinctions and reasons. From, for example, the goods of life and health and emotional rational integrity, with their correlative bads or harms of bodily or psychosomatic loss, disharmony and suffering, to the moral distinction between cruelty and the beneficent infliction of suffering as a side effect of, for example, healing or rescue. This paper of mine stays with the foundations and goes no further into either the further intermediate principles which structure specifically moral and properly rooted thought, or the dialectic with ethical methods such as the utilitarian, consequentialist, or proportionalist, and their liberal theoretical counterparts. The paper's theme is the first practical principles in their own progressively discoverable unfolding content. One motive for staying with this theme is to underline one's reason's unity. Though reason directed towards liberation and choice has its truly first and undeducible first principles, theoretical 
for speculative reason and practical reason are no wise two powers. In one seeking salvage about what it would be good to do, to attain or to become, one draws upon all one believes about what can be, is, has been, or is probable. And the understanding of such basic, basic truths as knowledge is good and desirable and to be valued and pursued, an understanding available even to those who will not deploy it appropriately, presupposes an awareness, theoretical if you like, of the possibility, the attainability of overcoming ignorance an awareness which is being supplemented by the new, original, logically underived, underused, practical insight articulated in the true practical proposition that knowledge is not just possible, but an opportunity. Good. Equally, in one's thinking soundly about what kind of being we human beings are, one's drawing upon that stock of original, primary, practical principles, which are thus not only the source, the principium of the normativity articulated in legal and moral thinking, but a source also of our knowledge of human nature. For to repeat, we know the nature of the dynamic reality such as ours by knowing the capacities of this kind of being, and we know the capacities in their turn by knowing the activities of which such beings are capable, and we understand those activities only by understanding their point, and that point is precisely what one is identifying in identifying each of the basic the forms of basic forms of human good. Identifying is hardly an adequate term, however. What we're being what we're here concerned with is an understanding of each of these kinds of opportunity, of these desirable aspects of ways of being a human person and a human community. As I've been saying, such an understanding of opportunity is equally a perception of becoming aware of the normativity that, when its content and force is elaborated, we call moral, and becoming aware of the content as well as the rational force, the normativity and directedness of moral proposition. The most specific and hard-edged of moral norms will be no more than a specification of what was, is, generically contained as directive in the principles that pick out the basic forms of human opportunity, human perfection. So what these basic principles contain, what these basic forms of human well-being truly are, is to be inquired into with zeal and care, with effort, and with all the resources of reflection, including what we lamely call fiction, say, King Lear. What we call will is essentially one's responsiveness to one's understanding of such opportunities. Whether Hume's teaching about reason's incapacity to motivate was the result more of his misunderstanding understanding or of his misunderstanding human appetitions, multiple layers of resource, scarcely matters. The teaching is thoroughly mistaken. In seeking to expand one's understanding of the basic kinds of opportunity open to us, one is responding with that kind of generic interest or pro-attitude that Aquinas calls voluntas simplex, to the intelligible goodness of whichever kind of good is presently the focus of one's inquiry. But one is also responding with something more focused and closer to choice. That is, with intent, one's responding in that way to the intelligible good of knowledge. And one's responding to what Aquinas calls the bonum rationis, the good of extending one's reason one's reason's motivating sway, its existential more than merely propositional normativity in one's own life, one's liberating truth and doing. 
In the last 25 years, those of us engaged in the reflective practical undertakings of which the book Natural Law and Natural Rights was a manifestation have tried various such explorations of basic human goods. Marriage, for example. It wasn't properly identified in natural law and natural rights where life, transmission of life and friendship were left in an uncertain relation. Reflection on the complementarity of the two sexes and on the way that in marital acts the couple can each actualize, express and experience their chosen commitment to marriage as the form of friendship oriented and appropriate to procreation has provided a good example, I think, of the sort of enhancement of understanding that I'm wanting to point to here. And then there is that word which can be called harmony between persons or friendship or sociability or even justice. The radical foundational equality between persons that turns out to be its very core can become understood better by reflections upon such extremes in human opportunity or peril as we considered in inquiring whether final retaliation against the inhabitants of an enemy state or strategic intra-war attack on the inhabitants of a city or other region, or the production of human beings by technical manipulation and materials, are indeed opportunities or mere temptations. The good which occasion has prompted us to consider perhaps most closely is that of human life itself. From its beginning to its end, it's nothing less or other than the very existing of the person, the human being. Aquinas, precisely when giving his fullest but not quite exhaustive list of the basic human goods, says that this good is, as existence, one that we share with all other creatures whatever. Though true, this would be very misleading if it made one overlook the vast differences between the existing of a molecule or of a lake of water, the life of a carrot, the life of a cat, and the life of a human being. Human life is the existence of a being with the radical capacities, real in their dynamism towards action, even when they're prevented from actuation by immaturity, sleep, sickness, or other injury or decay, the capacities to live in sanctity, heroism, shame, guilt. But those are moral, if not also legal, categories of human character. So I'll restrict my articulation to the point to more foundational categories such as meaning, truth, and freedom. Our nature as human creatures, the array of radical capacities we all have from the outset, is exemplified, for example, by how we do things with words. Certain sounds and marks, sheerly physical, even when retained in imagination and memory as brain states, convey by a kind of embodiment both understanding and intention, will to communicate this and not that or not this, between persons utterly separated in, their, in every physical dimension. This communicating displays both as effect displays cause and as an exemplary analogy how in the being make up an existence of their human authors materiality or godliness, physical, chemical, biological, and psychosomatic, is united with that which is as immaterial as a meaning, a notion, a proposition, a question, a purpose, shareable across continents or centuries, or the dinner table or the courtroom. As Aquinas argued, this kind of unity is best signified by taking one's soul to make the 
point very summarily, by taking one's soul to be the very form and act or actuality of one's body, such that it and one's soul can even be said to contain the body and to be the body's very basis. Here we reach the metaphysical foundation of human equality, which entails the inequality with us of all other creatures of which we have experience, all of them in truth not merely non-human but subhuman or lacking the dignity of the human because lacking a radical capacity foundational to our reality. In practical thinking, the metaphysics of the human person, such as I've very sketchily articulated, is normally left unarticulated, outside the focus of advertence. In its place is first the understanding intrinsic to the initial grasp of first practical principles that basic goods such as knowledge, life and friendship are good not only for me or thee, but for anyone. And second, the awareness or assumption that our choices and therefore our actions matter and that we are responsible in all the four senses that actually help distinguish. We cause effect, have at least radical capacity for care and choice, can have roles and duties of care and conduct and consequently liability to praise or blame for merit or guilt which make no sense unless our unrepentant free choices last in us as the intransitive, self-shaping, identity-constituting dimension of chosen action or chosen inaction. Our interest in such multiply grounded attributions of responsibility signifies this sort of practical, common theoretical understanding that our existence is as beings capable of mattering now because of our subsisting individual identities, each with a past as well as a future. Such transcendence of the material in both the benefit or benefits we envisage and the personal subjects we know are open to being so benefited, that transcendence is part of what warrants the thought that each of us matters. Matters in our life and death, health or ill health, our knowledge or our ignorance, our reasonableness or unreasonableness, our friendship or self-centeredness. It's a part of what warranted Elizabeth Atkin in referring <coughs> philosophically to the mystical value of the human being. Even though she was always ready to treat a word like mystical in the way she treated Aristotle's offering talk of the bloom on the face of youth to explicate the relation between pleasure and the objective of reasonable choice, babbling, she called it, I, it is, I think, mystical, a better word to try to convey what needs to be acknowledged about the value of the existence of each human being better than the word absolute, which someone might take Korsgaard's account to be asserted. We need some such awareness of human value if we are to make sense of the normative force, the directiveness of the principles of practical reason, the directiveness which they have when taken by just one first principle after another in isolation from each other and from the need to make particular choices, but in their integral directiveness under the architectonic regulatory directiveness of the good of practical reasonableness itself, that is, when taken as morally normative. Sometimes the death of someone known to us reinforces for us that awareness. Shakespeare, who makes present to us incomparably the actuality, the sheer vitality of human lives, and whose intentions were at the same time more knowingly philosophical than is often assumed, 
took some real individual's death as the occasion for articulating, amongst other things, the dependence of practical reason and its directiveness upon a responsive awareness of the value that human beings have and can enhance and diminish by their own responsiveness to it. Or so I read an enigmatic and unparalleled poem of his, first published in 1601, and commonly known as Phoenix and Turtle, where he memorialises, as Patrick Martin and I have, I think, shown, the marriage and death of a young widow shortly after her public execution for religion in late February 1601. He memorialises, that is to say, not only the union of wife and husband, Phoenix and Turtle Dove, with each other through years of separation by the husband's exile for religion, but also her constancy through the years after his death. The poem's term for this constancy and fidelity to commitment is, as was then a more common use of the words truth and true, truth. Truth. Despite that meaning constant, despite the extreme ab abstractness of its central anthem and its rigorous structuring by formalities of reasoning and of religion, what the poem centrally articulates is a grief that seems unmistakably the author's own, and a kind of awe at the costly and active loyalty of the spouses to each other, as well as to what they each held most dear held in common, and each died in miserable solitude for upholding. This couple's closeness and constancy in love, especially while divided and parted by exile, are celebrated in a series of virtuoso, quasi-mathematical, quasi-metaphysical paradoxes over seven stanzas, culminating in the structure of cause and effect, evidence and inference, antecedent and consequent, that is introduced along with the poem's last quasi-personal subject, Reason itself. Reason in itself confounded, saw division grow together to themselves, yet either neither. Simple were so well compounded that it cried, reason cried, how true a swain seemeth this concordant one. Love hath reason, reason none, if what parts can so remain. Love hath reason is here most carefully presented as expressing reason's own insightful judgment. Anyone who accepts a position like the one I've been arguing for representing in this paper will want to take this statement in a sense that anticipates neither the human Weberian desire creates reason and confers value upon its object, nor even to the less unequivocal Pascalian, the heart has its reasons of which reason does not know. May not this poet's love hath reason be compatible with, and perhaps even affirm, the position that love of persons, each precisely for his or her own sake, has the reasons which the first practical principles pick out, the human goods towards which those principles direct us, each of these goods an aspect of the worth in deprivation or fulfilment of each human being. Practical reason's first principles are, so to speak, transparent for the persons who can flourish in the kinds of way to which those principles direct us. 
so transparent that it is in truth those persons for whose sake we are responding when we respond at all to those reasons summons. Such love goes all the way from the truly all-embracing love your neighbour as yourself to particular commitment to another. For example, the uniquely exclusive while outward-looking commitment constitutive of marital love and is of the essence of all the practical normativity we call moral and, in proper case, legal. And for backsliders like us, the relatively few persons of heroic virtue can be a reminder, inspiring rather than depressing, that but for one's own, one's loves and wills, responsiveness to what these reasons summon us to, rational capacity would and will be for each of us nothing more than what Hume pretended it cannot but be for all a slave of the passions, passions, a slave that thus is, gives, and has reason none in Shakespeare's phrase. If the poet, who was a self-effacing maestro of judgment and whose artistry gets its deepest force in enactments of reconciliation and fellowship, concurs in denying that the highest or deepest imperium belongs to sightless desire or aversion, then we have a telling witness or advocate, not precisely an argument. But whether his work is properly understood as such concurrence is obviously a question of disputabilis for another day. In any event, there may be some here who find more persuasive the resonance of the articulated principles with lived experience, aspirations and efforts, not least those of poor and far country villagers. Phoenix and Turtle, 
which uh, he describes uh, in this way. He says, it took some real individual death as the occasion for articulating, amongst other things, the dependence of practical reason and its directiveness upon a responsive awareness of the value that human beings have and can enhance and diminish by their own responsiveness to it. And he appeals especially to the line, love enough reason, reason none, which he explains in this way, included in page 3. Love of persons, each precisely for his or her own sake, has the reasons which the first practical principles pick out, the human goods towards which those principles direct us. Each of these goods an aspect of the work in deprivation of fulfillment of each human being. I take him to mean that love of persons for their own sake helps to explain how facts about human fulfillment constitute reasons that guide our actions and thereby helps to explain normativity. My second observation concerns the section where <coughs> Phyllis discusses Aquinas' views on the first principle of practical reason. Despite Phyllis's general sympathy with Aquinas, he's always been conspicuously unenthusiastic about Aquinas' acceptance of Aristotelian eudemonism. And here's his present verdict on that aspect of Aquinas. Uh, I've quoted at length in Item 4. Now, he doesn't explicitly ask a further question. The could Aristotle or Aquinas have got more out of his eudemonism than he actually gets out of it? But I assume that Phyllis's answer to this question is no since he doesn't suggest any clarifications or developments that might have revealed a more useful role for the idea of an ultimate end than Aquinas himself assigns to it. Well, these two observations lead me to ask a question. Is Phyllis's attitude to Aristotelian eudemonism consistent with his claims about love of persons for their own sakes? But to explain my question, I'd like to go back to Phoenix and Turtle and quote a few lines around the line on love and reason. So this is in um, item 5, and especially I just mentioned the uh, left-hand column in the quotation. So between them love did shine that the turtle saw his right flaming in the phoenix sight. Either was the other's man. Property was thus appalled that the self was not the same. Single nature's double name, neither two nor one was called. Reason in itself confounded, saw the division grow together, and so on. Now, without wanting to pose as a literary critic or historian, I would think it was fairly safe to connect Shakespeare's references to unity and vision with an Aristotelian account of friendship. Some of Shakespeare's uh, numerical paradoxes 
arise naturally from Aristotle's conception of the friend as another self. In this kind of friendship, the two selves are not the same, but since each person is another self to the other, one might say, how true a twin seemeth this concordant one. So I digress for a minute to sketch a few elements of the Aristotelian conception of friendship, and for this purpose I draw on Plato's discussion. So rather than read all the passages from Aquinas, I just refer to them by the numbers of the sheet. Aquinas divides love into two types, uh, amicable love, or love belonging to friendship, amor amicitiae, and appetitive love, amor concupiscentiae, uh, passage 6. Amicable love for another aims at some good for the other in himself, whereas purely appetitive love aims at his good for the sake of one's own good. Amicable love treats the other as oneself by regarding the good of the other as one's own good. Passage 7. It's intellectual love belonging to the will in contrast to sensory love belonging to sensory desire. And this sort of love, intellectual love, is the product of election rather than passion, rational choice rather than non-rational information. So amicable love for another person is love of the person in his own right, secundum se, whereas love of the other for the sake of some further benefit to oneself is purely appetitive love. In amicable love we don't look for any further result for ourselves, and in this respect the object of love can be an ultimate object, and an it. This doesn't make it the ultimate end, but it's an ultimate end, in the sense that it's not simply directed towards a further end of ours. If we don't wish good to the other person himself, but want his good only for our sake, that's appetitive love rather than amicable love. Now, the basis for amicable love is some similarity between oneself and the other, item 10. And this recognition of similarity is also described as an apprehension of unity, in which one recognizes the other as another self, or perhaps more literally, as another oneself, another one of oneself, alias ipse, or outer ipse, item 11. This recognition of the other as another oneself produces intimacy in Heisio, including concern to know the other as one knows oneself. And such concern results in so-called ecstasy, that's to say, taking one's concern outside oneself. Appetitive love involves a concern for something outside oneself, but only in relation to oneself and what one likes. Whereas amicable love takes one more radically outside oneself in making one concerned for the other person in his own right. Item 12. Hence, amicable love remains in the object, whereas repetitive love turns back to oneself. In this respect, amicable love values its object apart from its relation to oneself. 
So one loves the good for its own sake and not because it's one's own good. Um, 13, 14, and 15. Uh, those points. So in amicable love, we love the other person as ourselves. This doesn't mean we love him as much as we love ourselves. It means that we love him as someone similar to ourselves. Uh, 16 and 17. In appetitive love, we are constrained by affections and inclinations that both begin and sustain love. In this case, recognition of goodness in the other person or thing depends on belief in its correspondence with some prior preference of mine, and if the preference changes, the reason for loving the other disappears. Intellectual love, by contrast, responds to the recognition of some value that we recognize as a good reason to continue our preference. We suppose that if our preference were to go away, but the value that we recognize did not go away, that would be a sign of error in our preference. This contrast between appetitive and intellectual love explains why intellectual love is needed for amicable love. Aquinas identifies a distinctive type of concern for other people and for some non-personal objects. And our reason for this concern doesn't depend on our antecedent inclination. We would think our inclination mistaken if it went away when the reason remained unchanged. So non-rational preference or attraction may provoke concern for this person rather than that one, but the type of friendship that results depends on the sort of concern that sustains it. Now, let's suppose it's appropriate to expound Finnis's reference to Shakespeare by introducing Aquinas' ideas on intellectual and amicable love. We might then reasonably ask what Finnis means by agreeing with Shakespeare's claim that love has the reasons which the first practical principles pick out. Finnis is careful to distinguish this claim from a human claim that some non-rational inclination creates reasons. I still wonder, however, whether Shakespeare's claim, uh, more or less identified with Finnis's, um, whether Shakespeare's claim fits Aquinas' understanding of amicable love. As I understand Finnis' Shakespearean view, he assigns some sort of priority to love in the generation of reasons. It doesn't seem to me, however, that that fits Aquinas. Shakespeare uses Aristotelian claims about friendship, the other self and so on, to suggest that reason is defeated unless it acknowledges the primacy of love. But I don't see that Aquinas acknowledges any such defeat. It seems to me that if Aquinas were rewriting Shakespeare, or Venice, he would say that intellect has the practical principles that love picks out. I'm inclined to believe then that the phoenix and turtle takes us <coughs> in two incompatible directions. On the one hand, it exploits Aristotelian views about love and friendship. On the other hand, 
it asserts some priority of love over reason. I say that these are incompatible directions because Shakespeare's argument for the priority of love rests on an alleged deficiency of reason that Aquinas denied. According to Shakespeare, the combination of unity and diversity in amicable love is an insoluble puzzle for reason, and only love can make it seem intelligible. But Aquinas disagrees on just this point. But if that's so, why does Aquinas take amicable love to be intelligible? The unity and diversity that create the puzzle for Shakespeare are summarised in the claim that the friend is another oneself. So the question about the intelligibility of amicable love brings us to the intelligibility of treating another person as another oneself. I don't want to discuss in detail how Aristotle tries to make that intelligible. I just note that one step in making it intelligible is a correct conception of one's own good. Aristotle alludes to this point in his defense of friendship, uh, book 9, chapter uh, 9 of the Ethics. No one, he says, would choose to possess all goods while being by himself. For a human being is a political animal and of a nature to live together. From the Aristotelian point of view, then, we make amicable love intelligible by understanding the nature of the agent's own good and the place of other people's good in one's own good. It's a further question whether the Aristotelian view is defensible. But at any rate, it leads us straight back to Aristotelian eudemonism. If we follow the line of argument suggested by Finnis, we shouldn't ignore the prominence of Aristotelian eudemonism in the foundations of this argument. Foundations for Practical Reason Revisited, John Finnis clarifies in the 